Please follow as I read Acts 2, 14 through 24. But Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed him. You men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, know this, and listen carefully to what I say. In spite of what you think, these men are not drunk, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it will be, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will sing, see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will perform wonders in the skies above and miraculous signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him. Just as you yourselves know, this man, who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to the cross at the hands of the Gentiles. But God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and indeed, we're reminded as we have been singing Lord, of your greatness, your grace, Lord, thank you for the spirit that dwells with each one in this room that has made a profession in you. And Lord, as we sang in that prayer, Lord, we pray that the spirit would work mightily as it has promised to do so through your word to enlighten our eyes, to teach us, and Lord, to guide us in righteousness. Father, for some, this has been a rough week, maybe the last few hours, and hearts are heavy, some are in mourning, some have received diagnosis this week that in, you have cancer, and for some, it's a phone call from a wayward child, and it just seems to get worse and worse. Father, I pray that to, for these few minutes that we can clear our minds and we can fall at your feet and bask in your precious word. Guide us, O oh Lord, through the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. And if you are just joining us, we have been journeying through this book ever so slowly. And we'll finish it by candlelight because the earth will be cooling after the sun burns out. But uh, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It's interesting, as you look through history, it's peppered with famous speeches, words that have served to bring transition, change. I think of uh, 1863, the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln, or in 1940, the speech, We Shall Fight on the Beaches by Winston Churchill, 
1941, The Day of Infamy by Franklin Roosevelt. Or 1987, The Brandenburg Gate and Tear Down This Wall by Ronald Reagan. History is tied directly with speech. And it shouldn't surprise you that was true then, it is true, or now it's true then, back at the time of Jesus in the first century. Historical writings were peppered with rhetoric. In fact, 25% of Acts is speech. And it shouldn't surprise us that in Acts 2, we have here the first sermon recorded in Scripture. I know some of you are going to say, I wish yours were as short as Peter's, but uh, nonetheless, uh, this is his first of four sermons that Dr. Luke will record. And we know why he's giving this, because the question that was raised is the the disciples were speaking in tongues in verse 12, that they were all astonished, the crowd, and the text tells us, what does this mean? And Peter is going to seek to answer that in this passage. As he does, take note of a couple things that are very important. First of all, Peter doesn't say, well, this is wonderful, what you've just witnessed, and we want you to be a part of this experience. No, he doesn't go down that road. Nor does he provide some opinions or discourse on thoughts that he has concerning these matters. Rather, what we're gonna see is Peter will turn to to the scriptures three times, he will cite them, and there's one allusion. He'll quote Joel, the text that you just heard, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. So let's look at the text, starting in verse 14. It says, Peter stood up with the 11. Remember, Judas Iscariot's been replaced. He raised his voice and addressed them. Uh, That phrase, raised his voice, is not that he's screaming at them. That's a common phrase throughout the New Testament, and it speaks of spirit-inspired utterance. So what he's about to deliver is from the Holy Spirit to the crowd. And notice again, we're in Jerusalem. That's the hub. If we had a chance, if I'd put this on a diagram, the Luke Acts is a two-volume work. I mentioned this before. It starts in Rome with the census given. That's the beginning of Luke. By the time we get to the end of Luke's gospel, we're in Jerusalem. Acts will start in Jerusalem, and we will move our way out to Rome where Paul is imprisoned. So there's this what we call a chiastic structure that's developed. And Peter gives two commands. He says, know this. A phrase he's going to use again in this passage, in this sermon. And a second phrase is, listen up. Sounds like a junior high basketball coach, right? Know this, listen up, or your piano teacher. Uh, Peter is going to correct the false assessment that some have. And he's also going to eliminate the confusion that most of them have. And this joyful worship, they're having a hard time equating. And as the crowd states, they believe They are drunk. This was mentioned earlier in the text, and it's reiterated here in verse 15. In spite of what you think, these men are not drunk. It's only nine o'clock. That's significant. What day is it? It's Pentecost. It's a Jewish feast. It's one of the one, only one of three pilgrimages. And the Jews were forbidden to eat or drink until 10. Some of the more devout would not do anything until noon. So at nine o'clock, No, they're not drunk. They've not even touched alcohol. No way. And and he's he's reminding them, hey, hey, look at your watches. It's only nine. This is not 9 p.m. It's 9 a.m. There's no way this could be. And, 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 And so 
Peter then unleashes, or um, he lays out the prophecy from Joel. Now, I don't know about you, but of all the texts to relate to the, the scene that's occurring, I, I wouldn't have thought of Joel. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, remember, he's raised his voice. Its spirit utterance is guided. He quotes from a minor prophet there in the latter part of the Old Testament. Peter's going to take the events that they have just witnessed. And remember, what they've witnessed is the coming of the Holy Spirit. The disciples are speaking in foreign languages. In fact, the text tells us they're not only speaking foreign languages, they're speaking the dialect to the people that are there. This outpouring of the Spirit linked with Joel, Peter is staying, stating, we're in the last days. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Joel. It's written probably in the late 500s BC. The book focuses on the prophetic judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. This is not Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> because Joel's taking out a paddle and he's saying, God is, is disciplining you. He's gonna spank you, judgment is coming. And it's interesting, Joel is very familiar with the temple. Most scholars believe he lived in Jerusalem. He was familiar with these things. And Joel's book gives some of the most striking and specific details about the day of the Lord. That is the time of judgment that is to come. However, the book also speaks of purification and a restoration that God's people will have, even though they are going to have to go through intense suffering. The book of Joel's prophecies that what is being fulfilled during the millennial, well, th these things are gonna happen in the millennial age. And Joel's saying, these things are to come. We want you to be aware of these things. Now, why is Peter citing this? Well, there are two major views among evangelicals, and I'll give them both to you. The first is that Peter sees the start of the decisive eras of fulfillment with a future completion. In other words, Joel's prophecy is now partially being fulfilled, the, yet, the future is yet to come, and that's verses really 18 and 19, well, excuse me, 19 and 20. Others argue, no, 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 what Peter is doing is giving us a foreshadowing. He's saying, why should you be surprised? Because Joel stated similar things will happen in the end, and the end is coming. We're in the last days. Either way, whichever view you take, Peter is being led by the Spirit to see in prophecy of Joel 2 an application to the church and an outpouring of the Spirit before the day of the Lord. And catch this, the need for repentance. Whether it's partially being fulfilled at the moment that Peter is speaking or it's all future, judgment is coming and Peter is saying, take heed. And we'll unpack this in a minute. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary states, it was indeed the dawning of a new age, as Peter is speaking, the last days in which God would bring to completion his plan of salvation for mankind. Jesus has finished the great work of redemption and nothing more needs to be done except to share the good news. So what we see here is an unfolding and Joel passage, Joel 2, which Peter's laying out, is saying, there's a judgment looming, and, and what you have seen has been spoken of in the Old Testament. You shouldn't be surprised. They're not drunk. The Spirit is moving in and through them. And remember, the Spirit didn't come all of a sudden in the New Testament era. The Holy Spirit existed in the Old Testament. Read Psalm 51, right? Don't let your spirit be taken from me, David prays, because in the Old Testament, 
the Spirit could come and go. In the New Testament, it is a down payment. But notice the Joel's passage. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, in the last days, it will be that God says, I will pour out my spirit. And if you're underlining something in the text, you'll want to underline the word all people. He talks about old men, young men, men, women, servants. He lays this all out. In other words, the spirit now is available to all people. Every race, gender, age, and class are included. The Spirit brings access to understanding God's plan and comes on those who call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 21, though cited from Joel, he's tying this together, Peter is. So the first couple verses are highlighting, yes, the Spirit is for all people. And there is a need to repent because in verses 19 and 20, Joel lays out, it's God who is acting. Notice the subject changes. God is speaking. I will perform wonders in the sky above, miraculous signs on the earth, blood, fire, and clouds of smoke. The, the shift to God's activity is looking to the end of what God will do. It's Joel's prophecy again. It's describing this judgment that is looming. If you don't think that, turn, look at verse 40. I know I'm showing you my cards for the next couple weeks. But verse 40 says, save yourselves from this perverse generation. In other words, this generation that's going to be judged. Repent, turn. And so clearly from verses 19 and 20, this future judgment, it's going to result in the upheaval of creation. That's why we're going to need a new heavens and a new earth because sin has tainted everything and God is going to use that as judgment upon humanity. Almost even the sun will be changed to darkness. The moon will turn to blood. It's all laid out there. In other words, the call to repent is all the more urgent because the eschatological, the end time clock is ticking and you're not going to have a MacGyver or a Chuck Norris to disarm it. It's, it's, it's ticking. The end is coming. And, and Peter understands this. And by the way, look at First and Second Peter, his epistles. He highlights the day is coming. Take heed. And so he echoes verse, uh, Joel in verse 21 to state, call upon the name of the Lord while you can be saved. This is powerful because in Joel's context, it's clear he's referring to the Hebrew term for God, Yahweh. He says, Israel's God is the one for salvation. And what is Peter doing? He's putting Jesus on the same playing field. That's key. He's saying Jesus is also God. They're one and the same. And the response is only adequate if it turns to God for deliverance from this judgment that looms to see Jesus as the exalted Messiah and Lord. And he's going to get to that. By the way, in verse 21, it also shows that the Lord has a plan and purpose for us, doesn't he? I mean, what's the objective of this eternal mission? Notice what the text says, so that we could be saved. Wow. That's what God, God has orchestrated these events from the beginning before time, through time, and an understanding there's a day coming when salvation will be brought and, and, and this is to bring us into a relationship with him. If you're following in your notes, there's an application I have there. We are blessed to live in the age when the spirit has been poured out 
on God's people. A foretaste of the end, yes, but the gift of the Spirit provides assurance that the Lord is in control. He encourages our hearts in the midst of life and grants a guaranteed hope for the future. I love the song. Nice job, worship team, this new song that we've just sung, because it, that captures the role of the Spirit in our lives. Second Corinthians 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Peter preached it here in Acts 2. He writes about it in 1 Peter. He's not forgotten this truth. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, 10, he says, concerning the salvation that we have, the prophets who predicted the grace that would come to you searched and investigated carefully. Joel. They probed into what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified beforehand about the sufferings appointed to Christ and his subsequent glory. They were shown that they were serving not themselves, but you. And think about that, O oh church. What a glorious thing. The prophets were looking to you and all that we would encounter in regard to the things they announced to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things angels long to catch a glimpse of. What a gift the Holy Spirit is to the church. The Spirit awakens our hearts. The Spirit allows us to understand and live out the truths of Scripture. The Spirit convicts of sin and sanctifies our lives. The Spirit draws us to Christ. The Spirit allows us to live out his fruit. The Spirit empowers us to do what the Lord has called us to do, and the Spirit uses us to minister to others. These are some of the great marks of the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Of course, it, it begs the question, doesn't it, we need to ask, and I think we need to ask ourselves even this morning, is the Spirit doing this kind of work in my life? Do we see the Spirit performing the actions in our own lives? With the indwelling of the Spirit, we have no need to be timid, to worry, to be unloving, to despair, or question our identity. We are in Christ, and the power of the Spirit moves in and through us for His glory. I love the calling on the name of the Lord. And again, it, it, under, it requires you understand more than just mere intellectual who this Jesus is. You're turning to him for salvation. And Peter knows that. And he's gonna spend the bulk, the rest of this sermon to talk about who is this Jesus. He's identified what just occurred, that is the outpouring in the spirit, but it's directly linked to this one who you are to, to turn to for salvation. And so he gives us three testimonies. The first of these are the miracles that Jesus has performed. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen, he repeats it. His audiences are daydreaming. They're probably going back to Joel. He said, no, 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 hang in here. These words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man, don't miss this, clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds. In fact, he mentions miracles, wonders, and signs. There's a bit of a blur with the lexical use. Miracles can indicate more simply just the supernatural. Wonders is the awe that it brings, and signs are proof or credentials that are given. The Gospels record 34 specific miracles that Jesus performed. The miraculous signs that Jesus performed indicated that God was working in and through. Peter highlights this here. And that is why 
Jesus as a miracle worker is essential to, the, to Christology of the New Testament. Uh, if you were to take a course on Jesus and the Gospels, there better be a section on Jesus as the miracle worker. It's key. 12th tree in his book, Jesus, the Miracle Worker, makes this profound statement. Jesus and the Gospel writers, a miracle performed by Jesus is an astonishing event. Exciting wonder in the observers, which carries the signature of God. Wow. And might I add, the miracles were to draw us to faith. John tells us, the latter part of his book, John 20, there are many miracles, John says, that Jesus did. (laughs) In fact, if I recorded all of them, uh, the world couldn't contain all the books. But I've only picked a few so that you might believe or go on believing, depending on how you take the Greek, that Jesus is the Christ. And so the miracles are vital. And Peter states here, he performed these and he says, just as you yourselves know, you were witness to these things. Remember, Jesus, it's just been two months, you know, 50 days that Jesus rose from the dead. They're they're privy to many things. And Acts 26 is clear. These things were not done in a corner. They were loud and clear. There's no question. But Peter's not done. He says, you got the miracles that Jesus did, but you also have his death and his resurrection. Notice in verse 23, this man (coughs) who was handed over by the predetermined plan and knowledge of God was executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. You executed, by the way. You kind of see, you do. You see a declaration and you see an accusation. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus' death was no surprise to God. Did you catch that? It was predetermined. Not even his suffering. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. Even his own son dying on a cross. Jerry Bridges writes, we must not misconstrue God's sovereignty, however, as to make people mere puppets. And Peter does that. Just as God ordained these events, you also stand guilty along with the rest of the Gentiles who crucified him. So Bridges states, so we must not press men's freedom to the point of limiting God's sovereignty. And I think it's great. Margaret Clarkson in her book, Grace Grows Best in Winter, Great title. (laughs) She says, the sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. (laughs) The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. Peter was there. He denied Christ. He's... He was given all the blow-by-blow plays, I'm sure, later by the women that were at the cross in John. And he could say here, this was predetermined. God knew it. Wow. And Margaret Clarkson says, all evil is subject to him and all evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of personal history of every member of his redeemed family. Don't bitch this. We're gonna see this as we go through the book of Acts that if you turn over this tapestry, a major thread is woven through and that is God is in charge, no one else. 
And that's a great comfort, is it not? Peter's not done here. He then cites, he says, God has raised him, released him from the pains of death. And then he cites Psalm 16. This psalm expresses trust and confidence in Lord's deliverance and his abiding presence. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, quotes David as a prophet, and he's seen as a prophet time and time again, especially in the New Testament and Intertestament Jewish writings, that David in Psalm 16 here is not speaking about himself, but about the Messiah, the promised one. Notice what he states in Psalm 16, which Peter cites. I saw the Lord always in front of me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My body also will live in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades. That's the realm of death. You won't leave it in the grave. Not permit your Holy One, or now, nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. You have made known to me the path of life and you make my life full of joy with your promise. And then as a good preacher, Peter's gonna pontificate on the text. He says, brothers, I can speak confidently to you about our forefather David, that he both died, was buried, and his tomb with, is with us today. And it was, according to several writings from the first century, Josephus being one of them, the tomb of David was located on the southeast quadrant of the city of David. Herod will ransack it for gold. And he realized what a mistake he made, so later he builds one big mausoleum monument to David, which is later destroyed in the Jewish revolt of 133, the Bar Kokhba revolt. So it's not even destroyed in the 70 AD. And so we know this tomb. And, and Peter says, David obviously not talking about himself, because over here is his tomb. He became worm food, he did decay. He's talking about something far more significant he says in verse 31, David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned by Hades, nor did his body experience decay. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all, here it is again, witnesses to it. We all know there's an empty tomb. There's no other way to explain it. And so as he quotes David here from Psalm 16, Peter's giving us five reasons why David's speaking of the Messiah. First of all, David's tomb. Secondly, the Messiah was not only rescued from the grave, he didn't decay. The Davidic covenant, that is the promise that God made to David back in 2 Samuel 7, involved a messianic hope. It promised something for the future. And David had prophetic insight. He's a prophet, still a king, but considered a prophet. Had insight that there was a Messiah that was to come, a promised one. And as Peter argues, he knew there was a resurrection, which is huge. And he says, Peter says, we're, we were witnesses to all of this. I mean, remember, they're in Jerusalem. This is where it occurred. It was just two months before. And so Peter's argument is very straightforward. The Messiah will rise from the dead as scripture shows. God raised Jesus, thus Jesus is the Messiah. It's, it's point blank. And so as he's laying out this Jesus of Nazareth, he says, first of all, look at the miracles. You witnessed those. He raised people from the dead. He made the blind see. He made lepers. <laughs> he healed lepers. He made the, the lame walk. Many, he cite, even in Jerusalem, 
You can hear him just say, hey, remember the guy that was blind, went down to Siloam pool and came up, could see? Blind from birth. He also cites the death and the resurrection, and then he cites, Peter does, the exaltation in the latter part of his sermon. He says in verse 33, so then, exalted to the right hand of God, that is Jesus, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, that is the promise, is the Spirit, by the way, he has poured out what you both see and hear, for David did not descend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, now this is Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, all of Judea, all of the Jewish people know, without a doubt, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let's unpack this exaltation because it's key. There are three things that occurred because of the resurrection. And, and Peter's highlighting this. First of all, Jesus was exalted. He was placed at the right hand of the Father. That's what Psalm 110 is talking about. It demonstrates that this wasn't David, but that David was aware that there was a descendant, the promised one, who will take this position. Again, this is enormous. Don't miss this. You don't get anything else. This is huge. Because what Peter is stating by citing Psalm 110 is stating that this Jesus is not just any person. Because no person has an opportunity to sit permanently at the right hand of the Father. And all of God's glory. No, 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 no. No, no. What he's stating is that Jesus and the Father are one. This Jesus of Nazareth is God. It's huge. We will also note it was not that Jesus became someone different from who he was before. I've heard people argue that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Philippians is two, 2 is clear. He left that pre-incarnate glory to come to earth. He was God before, during, and after. He simply is stating he entered a new stage that is Jesus in his career. And Hebrews is clear. He now serves as an intercessor for us at the, the, the throne of God caring for us. So we also see that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. That's the second aspect of the resurrection, demonstrating that Jesus is Lord. And third is the gift of the Spirit, which flows from the Father and the Son, allows us to see and to hear, to know. And that takes us back full circle to Joel 2. The Spirit's outpouring fulfills the promise pointing to the last days and to the Messiah's mediation of salvation from God's side. And again, he says you can testify to these three. Uh, all aspects, Jesus' miracles, his death and resurrection, and his ascension, and all that that entailed with the Spirit coming, he says to the crowd, you saw it all. We're not making this up. And so he says, may the, all, may the house of Israel know without a doubt. This makes a postmodernist break out in a rash. I mean, Peter is speaking with certainty as the term indicates knowing truth with complete confidence and assurance. There are not a whole lot of things in this world you can know with certainty. <laughs> but this is one thing you can. And why? Why would Peter speak of certainty of these things? Is he fearful that the lies will later be <laughs> exposing them? They've made this all up? Or that those who embrace this Jesus will be persecuted and suffer? No, the text is clear. It's tied with Joel too. 
there's a judgment coming. And you better know this for certain. (laughs) When the neurosurgeon is operating, I hope he or she knows for certain what they're doing. I I know for certain when I put the gas in, it's not the diesel, or I got a serious problem. All the more our eternal state and judgment that looms for those. And, And notice what Peter states, that you know without a doubt. He, 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 he says, this is how you, who, who you should know. Here's how it is that you should know it without a doubt because what they're to know is that Jesus is Lord. And this connects with Psalm 110 and even Joel's prophecy. That is that you understand this Jesus is Lordship over salvation and the distribution of salvation's benefits. It's that Jesus has total capacity and authority to forgive sins and judge humanity. And so he says that you know him as Lord and that you also know him as the Messiah. This, by the way, is the gospel message. (laughs) And notice the text says that Jesus, that God has made this Jesus. A better term there would be to vindicate. He didn't appoint him. He vindicated. This is the one that has been promised And so in your notes, another application, we serve a living God who graciously reveals himself so that we can know him. This knowledge engages our minds, stirs our hearts, and transforms our lives. Thought much about it this week. What does it mean to know God? Many fine theologians have written books. J.I. Packer, Knowing God, it's a classic. If you've not read it, you should. But when you think about to know him, the reason I can know him is because he first knew me. While knowing God is important, the greater fact is what underlies that statement. The fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. His eye is never off me. I've got my eye on you, Waskowski, right? To quote a line. Packer writes, all my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. Now talk about unspeakable comfort. His incredible love existed despite knowing everything about me. He still called me. He still died for me. And that can be said of you as well. There will be no revelations that disillusion him or cause him to quit the relationship. He's there. And I can say anything to God and he will not be surprised, threatened, or shocked because he knows. (laughs) Wow. There's an old hymn that says, fear not, he knows. My soul, why fret and tremble? Fear not, he knows. Your life is in his hands. Fear not, he knows, and you know he is able to care for you. So trust the best that he has planned. Oh Lord, you know, tis a thought so joyous, though I don't know what need I have to fear. You know, you know. Thank and praise you, Jesus. Through all unknowns, you make yourself so dear. The basis of knowing him is because he knows me. Wow. And think about it. How can you know that Jesus is Lord and he's Christ? The only way is if he came and came as a child, live this earth, performed the miracles that were all giving glory to God, by the way. They were never self-serving. And then he dies on a cross, he rises from the dead, and he sends the Holy Spirit, all because of us. Wow. 
It's because he knows. He wants us to know him. And what's the result of the knowing? It's joy. It's not just, this isn't just, oh, embrace Jesus intellectually. This isn't preparing for the bar exam. No, no. This is coming to grasp that Jesus is Lord and he is our redeemer. It's so easy to let our misery of life eat at our soul. Let events that disturb us in the moments of, you know, whether it's hearing a medical prognosis or standing at the bed of a dying loved one to plunge into despair. Isn't it? It's the world we live. It stinks. <laughs> we try to dismiss it. We brush it off saying, well, you know, God's in control. Or perhaps we become angry with God. It's the logical place to go if we don't know this one who is Lord and Savior and the joy that comes in it. Sam Storms writes, if we do not know who God is and how he thinks and what he does, we have no grounds for joy. There's no reason to celebrate. There's no basis for finding satisfaction in God. Delight in God cannot occur in an intellectual vacuum. That's key. Our joy is the fruit of what we know and believe to be true of God. So you see the basis. You see the result. And what is the ultimate goal of our knowing? I would argue the chief aim in life is to have fellowship with him. It's like the guy on a college campus and this very attractive young lady walks across on the other side and says, oh, I got to know her. He says to his friends, I want to spend some time with her and take her on a date. You know, uh, this is great. We'll see if she likes me. Philippians 3, my aim, Paul writes, his greatest longing is to know the Lord, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. Oh my goodness, that's what he just highlighted here in Acts 2. I want to know this, Peter says. And so somehow, while the way is unclear, he's talking about the goal, he knows, is to attain the resurrection from the dead. And that's why elsewhere Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 2, I want to know Christ. The Puritan writer John Milton states, the end of all learning is to know God, and out of that knowledge is to love and imitate him. I taught Greek for years, and I would tell him on the first day after, it's a two-year journey, I'm not doing this so you can pontificate. I'm doing this so you grow in your love for God. And understanding this precious word that he has given. The more we know him, the more we run to him. The more we understand his grace and mercy, the more we praise him. The more we grasp of his holiness, the more we despise our own wickedness. The more we know of his power, the more dependent we become on him. And the more we understand of his love, the more we love him. Wow. Oh Lord, help us to know you. And to understand as Paul has declared in Philippians 3, the experience, the power of your resurrection, to share in your sufferings and to be like him in death. That is the goal of every believer. And so, CBF, know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus, who was crucified because of our sin, both Lord and Christ. Praise be to God. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself. You entered time and space. You have given us your word. 
And you've given us the spirit which it, it opens our eyes to these truths. Lord, there may be some individuals here this morning that really do not know your son. Oh, they've given lip service. They go to church on occasion. But fact be known, there is no transformation of the heart. There's no grasp of what it really means to know you. I pray today they would yield their life to you. For some in this room, the bitterness of life, disappointment, anger, you fill in the blank, Lord, have eclipsed all that you are. <laughs> They've eclipsed the privilege of getting to know you because you know us. And Father, I pray that they would, you would help them to pry the fingers off of what they're grasping and to open their hands and lay them at your feet. Father, for those that are walking with you, it's a, just a reminder this morning of the importance of knowing you. It is our chief aim. Why? So we can glorify you. So that we can bask in your presence. And I think of Moses who just, if I could just see you, God. And Lord, how much more do we have than Moses? We have the complete canon. We've got the spirit indwelling within us, those who've made a profession of faith. And so, Father, we thank you. Guide us, mold us, shape us, O oh Lord, so that we can say, yes, we have grown in our knowledge of you. It is our prayer as it was for Paul and for Peter and all the saints that have gone before us. In Jesus' name, amen.